Welcome to the Panoramic Outdoors Podcast, connecting you to all things outdoors. Hot. We're live and you're here with us. Welcome to episode 113 of the Panoramic Outdoors podcast. On this podcast today, this afternoon, this evening, wherever you listen to us, we have Craig Koshik from Dog Willing Publications. Craig literally wrote the book on pointing dogs and we are beyond excited to have him on the podcast today. We'll get into all kinds of things from the history of pointing dogs, where they originated from, and kind of some of those modern implications for the modern pointing dog world. But before we get to that, Chase, how's your weekend been going? How's uh, What have you been up to? You hit the water at all? Uh, kind of. So I had an interesting weekend. Saturday I had some work to do out at uh, Pilot Mound. Shout out to Mound Wildlife because uh, they put on a all-ladies fishing tournament out there, and I had to go out there and kind of do some PR work. And uh, they put on a good tournament, man. They had 90, about 90 people come out and participate. I think there's only like seven fish caught, but they had a bunch of prizes there, and they obviously a bunch of people came, free hot dogs. All the holes were drilled, and it was a great day to be outside. So um, good on them for putting on a, a good show there. And then yesterday, or today, um, I hit the hit the shack on the river, so the days are numbered for that. So I thought I'd take advantage of one of our last few days here on the river, and uh, yeah, we did. Uh, we caught a couple fish. We weren't fishing too hard. The bite wasn't hot and heavy. The kids were pretty busy staying occupied in in other ways, going outside or running laps in the ice shack, and we cooked up a little brekkie in there, so that was good. And then, uh, yeah, that was pretty much today. Came home, played some hockey, and, and uh, yeah, that's where we're at. How about you? Nice weather, man. I don't blame the kids for wanting to be outside. Is yeah. There, uh, is there any wood left in the shack for me? Yeah, I took a load it's of wood been, down there. It's uh, been at a premium this year. Oh, man. I had to dig down through uh, quite a few feet of snow. Actually, like, typically, to get to my wood pile, I, I dig a little trail, and then I get access to the good wood. I came from like up top and dug down to the top of the wood pile because that's how much snow is on top of it right now. And uh, not the not the premium wood, about half premium, half kind of not quite seasoned enough wood was what I was able to get. So I that's what I threw in the bucket. Seemed to be burning all right if you mixed it up. But uh, yeah, heads up if you're heading down there, make sure you got her nice and hot when you start tossing in the the old uh, poplar there. Yeah, I, I don't even know where half my wood is in the yard because it's, it's snow, so snow-covered. Um, big shout-out to all the ladies that went fishing at the – was it the Pilot Mound tourney you said, Chase? Yeah, Mound Wildlife, yeah. Yeah, yeah they they definitely uh, – I guarantee you they all outfished me this weekend because I did not catch one fish yesterday. I was out uh, on Lake Winnipeg booting around with our friend there, Jameson. And, uh, yeah, yeah. Not a lot of luck on my end. We caught one early. Jameson caught one early and thought it was going to be a good day. Yeah. But, but uh, yeah, it just seemed to slow down for us. The uh, the interesting part, though, is, like, I noticed there's a noticeable difference now in when I'm loading that 
a large toboggan. So you know, you know the setup I got. I got an old Yamaha sled with a two up, mm-hmm. and I'm hauling around a uh, a toboggan behind it with all my gear in it. Yeah, and it it can get a little rough, so we got to go a little slow sometimes. But the point remains that the electric ice auger is just a game changer for for room and weight in that sled. So what are you laughing at? I'm just having memories of the last time we went out. And oh I was like, I, oh, man, what is that smell? Did I spill gas on something? <laughs> you gave the sheepishly, oh, I think that's me. That's me. Yeah. 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 I had uh, gas everywhere in the uh, – I had another jerry can break in the back of the truck. But uh, that's that's neither here nor there. But I do appreciate the fact that we don't have to haul around jerry cans in the back of the – this toboggan anymore yeah no kidding that's, that's amazing uh the other cool thing is uh i think i said on here before about the the extension system and just the the ease of changing the flights on that uh, on that jiffy auger is pretty sweet man compared to what we're used to and makes life a lot easier when you got to throw the extension on and travel with the auger and you know it's easy to take apart easy to throw back together and uh, pound through that thick ice. How many feet of ice were on the lake when you guys were out there? It's hard to tell, and I'm I'm gonna be honest. Like you and I were just talking before the show, logistically here speaking, talking about that extension, and I'm I'm so glad we had it because we definitely needed it. And it's not as hard to cut either. I find with with uh, Jiffy Auger than it would be with some of those other augers because the the auger does the work for you. You don't need to apply that downward pressure. Mm-hmm. But there, there's got to be a foot of snow on the ice plus that you're drilling through and then probably another three feet of ice on top of that. So Oof. you definitely need the the extension without yeah. a doubt, right? It's It gets real thick real quick. So no um, yeah, and I noticed you just have to pay a little bit more attention to clearing the holes uh, than we did earlier in the season, which wasn't a big deal. But uh, yeah, that, that chipper blade makes a big difference, I find. Yeah, right now you with that uh, with that three feet of ice, you always get some slush that's like stuck down to the bottom or or something like that. Even if like maybe you're referring to when you're actually drilling the holes, and uh, it gets dangerous when when you when you uh, if you're drilling and you don't clear clear the holes when you're when you're actually drilling and that water comes in and just locks everything right up. Oh yeah, slush. You guys have lost their flights on the on the ice because of that, right? So you, you gotta, see a you gotta cu- clear it out. Couple, holes, folks. couple posts on the forum every year are i got my auger flight stuck <laughs> need some help getting it out kind of kind of funny but uh if you guys are interested in uh, checking out what jiffy has in store make sure you head over to jiffyonice.com and see their latest and greatest gear they have all kinds of stuff we have uh we're running the rogue this year battery powered unit and uh it's been performing pretty awesome for us it's uh pounding through the ice super easy to use super convenient so check them out jiffyonice.com and uh all i don't want to overlook march madness i'm i'm very excited there's a lot of cool things that happen in march here like come outdoor time but i i'm i have to confess that i'm already looking towards the the open water season oh man yep I'm looking forward to March Madness. I'm hoping I can uh, reserve a position on the back of the snowmobile or maybe <laughs> I can hook up a trailer to Tyler's track truck and ride in the back of there to get out to the lake a couple times and maybe have to uh, tote a uh, box of shotgun shells 
on our way up there too for the spring goose season. And uh, I was just thinking, I'm like, man, I could stop at Harvester Outdoors in Selkirk, grab my shotgun shells, grab my minnows, and uh, do the donation to the Children's Hospital all in one go. And then uh, head up for some uh, some master angler slaying or some spring goose hunting, whichever way you want to go. Maybe you take a left, maybe you go straight. I don't know. But uh, the spring goose season is opening up uh, March 1st here to the 31st. And things aren't looking too great at the moment for the spring goose season. But I'm hoping we get some warmer days, a little bit of sunshine, get some melting happening and make it a little more inviting for a few of those giant cannas to come up because I'd love to to pound a few of them. Yeah, I hear you. We've been talking about uh, getting onto the uh, the ice there and maybe even doing a little a little fish and hunt at the same time. That's the dream. I don't know how feasible it is, but let's let's try. What are they plan for sunshine or no? Wait, it's plan for rain. Pray for sunshine. Anyways, yeah. hopefully we get out there and do a little bit of spring goose hunting, but. Uh, might not be possible this year. No kidding. No kidding. <clears throat> um, last weekend, uh, I was out on the river and I tried to, I went down to end of Maine and I can't remember if I talked about this on the podcast already, but I had the uh, the Mr. Buddies out. I had the, the cooker out, the, um, uh, geez, the flex cooker, Mr. Buddy flex and the Mr. Buddy flex cooker. And they worked pretty well for me. And it was like minus 30 out, tough traveling on the river <laughs> And the uh, the Buddy Flex was just kind of, I mean, minus 30 is making the tent nice and comfortable. And But I went outside and I was like, ah, I'm going to go try somewhere else. But And it was cold, man, and there was a stiff breeze. And it was the first kind of time that I got to put the, uh, the striker suit to the test out there in the cold weather. And I got all bundled up. We picked those up from uh, Stillwater Adventures in Verdon. And... It's unbelievable how how warm the, the, those suits are. Very comfortable, very warm, and just built really nice for ice fishing. Lots of pockets. They got got the little towels on the knees and all kinds of stuff. So super yeah, impressed with those products. That's the that's the biggest upgrade I noticed. And even I, I run an F, FXR suit, but uh, uh, the striker suits look absolutely fantastic. And just the functionality of it, I find, is the next level for not only does it keep you warm, those pockets make a big difference, man. I, I don't worry about my f- phone flying out anywhere anymore. I keep my pliers on me. Mm-hmm. Like It's, it's kind of nice that they're not just clothing. They're like complete systems at this point in time. Yeah. Flotation, like all these things that you don't want to mess around with or you don't think you need to mess around with until you go down through the water in your flannel jacket and then you're, you're in a, you're in a big kind of situation. So yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's comforting and it's also just makes life on the ice that much more easier. Yeah. Well, one of our good buddies too said the flotation system saved his life once before. So that's enough for me to, you know, make the choice when I'm looking for new winter gear to make the choice with, uh, something with flotation in it for sure. Mm-hmm. And if, uh, you guys haven't heard about Stillwater Adventures, where we got the the striker stuff from. Check them out. New outdoor store in Verdon, Manitoba. Uh, check out their website, stillwateradventures.ca, and they have all kinds of stuff in store waiting for you to purchase. So check them out. Pretty cool spot. The, the store looks nice too. I, I'm I'm itching to get down there and just take a peek at it. I'm curious. Yeah, 
got to get down there. They, they, they got a pretty nice setup looking there. Check out their Facebook page, their Instagram page, all kinds of stuff. And you get a little preview of what's in store there. So, and then I guess we got to start thinking about turkey hunting, eh? Oh man. Turkey hunting and bear hunting. I don't know. Uh, I haven't looked at the, I don't know if the spring supplements came out yet, but I was, I was just looking at last year's start dates and I think the opening day was the same day and I'm getting the turkey fever. Last year I bought a bear tag, but didn't end up going bear hunting. Had a couple opportunities to shoot at bears, but didn't do it. So now I feel the pressure, like I need to just get it done already and go get me a bear. What I'm thinking about doing though, is going out and doing a little predator calling for the bears this spring and trying to line it up with the, when the calves are dropping and try and get one like that. Interesting. Let's see. I I told your spot and stock story the other day. We met up with uh, Cortland and Chase on the on the ice, and uh, she was talking about spring bear hunting, and I was trying to explain your story where you, you had the chance at one in the fall, <laughs> but you were sitting on the ground with an arrow at dusk by yourself, and you were saying, do I really want to poke this thing at dusk with a bow? And, uh, you know, because it, it's... I know I wouldn't want to do that. The last thing I want to be doing is chasing a bear around in the dark. Yeah, with a with a bow. Yeah, but. the uh, the one kind of neat, but it's kind of a spooky part about bear hunting is like the death moan, right? So you know, if you got a good shot on them, they do a death moan, and you know, there's a good chance that bear's going to be down. But when they don't do the death moan, that's when you're like, oh shit, you yeah, know what? So. Kind All of things fun. to consider. Yeah, kind of scary, but uh, certainly not a fan of chasing a bear around by myself in the bush after dark without a firearm. <laughs> so. Totally, totally. I get why you made that call. Well, hopefully we get uh, we get something more solid planned, and I, I'm still on the fence about it. But uh, you know, I'd like to get out and do a little something, even if it's a little camera work too, right? So yeah, totally. Could be could could be interesting out there. Man, with the sunshine coming and the warmer weather, it feels like uh last couple of days have been a, a a little taste of spring. Get some of that vitamin D. Things are a few more smiles around there. Looking forward to uh, what the spring has to offer here. But without further ado, let's get this podcast rolling here and uh we hope you guys enjoy this one. All right, guys, if you've been listening to the podcast here for a while you know that iHunter has been a huge supporter of our podcast so big thank you to them if you don't know what iHunter is it is a it is the all-in-one hunting app for hunters across Canada right at your fingertips we're talking map customization uh, waypoint sharing all kinds of stuff you can have along with all that um, you're able to access satellite maps and uh, integrate different layers on your mapping platform so they have base map platforms to begin with and then they have the public land subscription that will give you all of the public land stuff and then they have a landowner subscription where you can buy landowner maps across whatever province it is that uh, that you're living in along with all that they have uh, up-to-date weather updates like I said earlier sharing and messaging uh, devices and you can run this without any cellular service so it is been a huge tool in our toolbox of our hunting gear and it's helped us out in in many ways so um, if you don't have it yet check it out 
The base map layer is very affordable to get into and uh, you can level up from there. If you're interested in getting a discount on the public lands maps, head over to their web-based platform, web.ihunterapp.com. Use the promo code PANORAMIC30 to get yourself 30% off of the public land subscription. And uh, also check out the landowner maps while you're there. And while you're on that website, you could also transfer all your waypoints over from your old GPS onto this new platform so you have them right there for the next time you hit the field. That's web.ihunterapp.com. And today I want to welcome Craig Koshik to the, the Panoramic Outdoor Podcast. And Craig, it's a real pleasure to have you. One of the, the local guys around Manitoba and Winnipeg here. So welcome. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Yeah. And we're going to talk a lot about not just dogs, but gun dogs, pointing dogs today. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about your your publications you got coming out in an anthology of sorts through uh, Dog Willing Productions publications. And um, we'll talk about the podcast. But uh, before we get rolling, we always ask our guests five burning questions. And that's just to get a little a little to know you. And so we like to think that they come off fast, but sometimes we, we go down a few rabbit holes. So are you ready for the five burners, Craig? Ever. Okay. Question number one, who's on your nightstand right now? What, are you reading something or are you, uh, you know, watching okay. watching a show? No, I'm a bookworm, right? I'm I'm old school. Right? I started I started this well before the interwebs and all that stuff. And uh, in fact, my wife and I, um, you know, sort of our hobby, and and friends would think we're kind of weirdos, and we are. We're kind of weirdos. We're word geeks and linguists and library rats. That's what we used to do for fun. We would spend our weekends at the library, <laughs> just hmm. going and reading books. So yeah, I've got a couple of books on my nightstand right now. One's called Fields of Glory by a guy named Skihan, and it's about uh, uh, field trials in the early days in the U.S. And another one is um, called The Discovery of France, and it's about the history of of France, basically. So yeah, mainly historical stuff. Cool, and that's. Uh... That kind of perks my ears to a question I'll ask you later in the podcast about some of the research you're up to, but uh, that's good to note, get a little context of what's going on for you now. Next one, if you could be any canine, what canine would you be? Well, that's a great question. Yeah, I'd probably be some kind of a, a running hound, you know, like a greyhound of some sort. I, I love them speedy dogs. So I'd like to be a, a speedy dog, one that just runs like hell, you know, and that needs about 10 minutes of exercise a day and then is comatose for the rest of it. That'd be me. <laughs> well, I think you got your 10 minutes of shoveling in today. So hopefully I did. you're, you're yep. set to relax. Yeah. Yep. Okay. And if you, uh, if there was one place in the world you'd like to go yet, what, uh, what place would that be? Well, that I still haven't been, um, definitely Ireland. Okay, you know, nice. I would say Ireland and then Norway, and both of those are in the works. Both of those uh, trips, in fact, um, uh, just as COVID hit in in nine, well in twenty twenty, um, I had half a dozen trips to Europe already planned, booked. Cars were rented, hotels were rented, the whole ball uh, ball of wax, and we had to cancel everything due to this damn plague. So yeah, I would say Ireland. Um, uh, you know, I want to hunt snipe. I want to watch Irish setters uh, on the uh, Irish moors and the bogs, hunting and and field trialing on snipe. That's on my bucket list. And then, and then of course Norway. I'd like to see setters and pointers work there. Man, that sounds cool. 
uh, you you let us know when we're going, and uh, we we promise the wife won't even know that we're there. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, hey, come on down, man. We've been invited to Norway, and in fact, we're gonna go there and meet a, a friend in Norway who I've never met before, but an internet friend who's into setters. And I put her onto friends of mine that I live in Holland who got dogs from a friend of mine in France. So we're all gonna meet up there. Um, the Dutch and the Canadians and Norwegians, we're all gonna meet and uh, and and follow some dogs and shoot some uh, ptarmigan or what they call grouse, red grouse, a type of red grouse anyway. Man, that sounds cool. Yeah. Uh, I'm getting excited just thinking about it for you. Um, I was going to ask you what your last meal would be, but hearing that you're of the musical persuasion, what would your last concert be? If you, oh, to, if, to, to attend? Yeah, to attend. Alive, we usually say alive or dead. If, if you could see anyone one last time, you know, you're, you're kind of on your way out the door here. And uh, the the prison guard says, "Okay, we've got a time machine, and you can go see any any band." There, there's a couple of bands actually. I love um, post rock music. I'm into that in a big way right now. And there's two bands that have reformed recently. One's called Maybe She Will, and they're unbelievably good. And another one's called Porcupine Tree. I'd like to I'd I'd give a left kidney to see either one of those bands. Interesting. I will have to look them up because I am not part of the post rock scene, but I just on your merit alone, I will have to. So. Maybe she will, and porcupine, porcupine tree, yeah. okay. and uh, and another one called Caspian. If you look up those three, they'll blow your mind. So if you're into that sort of stuff, it's it's instrumental. See, I write all day, right? Uh, oh, you know what? And I, I need to I need to, so there's a guy that I would absolutely now I'd give both the left and right kidney to see is a guy named Brian Blade. He's like the world's greatest jazz drummer ever uh, and never will be. Per- he's just, he's the, he's the God. I, I bow to him every day as I'm practicing my drums, you know, sort of poorly hacking away on them. Um, but yeah, Brian Blade, I would want to see. Uh, so yeah, check those bands out. Cool. Yeah. I was going to remark too, drum, drumming seems to be like a kind of really unique position within the music industry where the the drummers don't always seem to get a ton of credit, but they're, they are so impactful on how the music works and flows. So it's, uh, it's interesting to hear that uh, you, you gravitate t- towards a guy like Brian so intensely. Oh yeah. Brian Blade. He's the kind of guy that, you know, I'm a photographer, right. And I've been, you know, taking pictures for 40 some odd years and I got to be pretty good in the dark room. I started in the analog days and, um, and I got a, a fairly, you know, decent reputation for being a, a darkroom worker, making, you know, platinum and, and other alternative process prints and the old silver prints, you know, the old red light and, you know, the old trays full of chemicals and stuff. And I thought I was, I thought I was pretty good. And I was, you know, and so in sometime in my, I guess, early thirties, I went, I was on one of my trips to France. I went and saw the works of one of my heroes. His name was Paul Strand. And he was reputed to be the best darkroom printer in the world. And I looked at his stuff and the first time I saw it, I thought, Two things, two thoughts ran through my mind almost simultaneously is number one, I'm giving up. I will never, ever be even close to that that greatness. But then almost at the same time, I thought, no, can I swear on this podcast? I'll just say, no, screw it. I will get that good, damn it. Uh, I'm going to work my ass off. And Brian Blade's like that. I, I listen to him and go, I can't even play one one hundredth of what he can. And it it's discouraging, but it's also encouraging at the same time. I think, no, you know what? If I just keep working, I'll get even better. So there you go. Craig, yeah. do you play any other instruments besides drums? I just starting to learn piano. Oh, um, nice, nice. So, so this, um, the, I, I played. I spent. I misspent a lot of my youth playing in rock and roll bands from the age of about thirteen to about twenty-two. 
when all of a sudden money and 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 gigs and shows and that got in the way and I started hating it and I got out of it. Um, and then I didn't really play much until um, COVID hit, frankly. Uh, I thought, okay, we're in lockdown. I'm going to be locked in my man cave for the next year or two. What am I going to do? I'm going to go buy an electronic drum set so that I don't bother my wife. Uh, I fell in love with it. You can play it with earphones. It sounds like you're tapping on telephone books to people outside the room, but in your earphones, you're John Bonham. And <laughs> it's unbelievable. And since then, I've added two more acoustic kits and I've got a hybrid electronic acoustic kit. So I'm all in. Nice. And then just last summer, I bought a, a little Akai a MIDI controller keyboard and I've started writing and composing stuff. My sister's a pianist. She's a very accomplished pianist. She lives in Toronto with another musician who's a, a well-known musician and does who does movie soundtracks and whatnot. And so they're, they're kind of guiding me through and I collaborate. Basically, I, I write pieces and I record a track or two, send it to buddies wherever one in Las Vegas and another one here in Winnipeg and they send me tracks on top of it. We just kind of collaborate on pieces remotely. You nice. know, it's a sort of our adaptation to, to COVID. That's cool. I feel like, uh, drummers are, are almost like similar to steel guitar players in a way is like, if, if you see somebody in a band, but they're not by their instrument and they're being criticized by somebody outside of the band, someone else would be like, Oh yeah, that's the drummer. Don't worry about him. And yeah. and then it like it just explains everything that they're witnessing or something like that. You know what I mean? Well, it's yeah, that's the old joke, right? Yeah. What, what do you call a guy that hangs out with musicians? A drummer. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because they're not really considered that. But yeah, I mean, I I love music and I've been involved in it most of my life. Um, but really this was just sort of an outlet and it's the only one of the only silver linings of this whole darn pandemic is that um I am not the only one. In fact, some of the guys I'm jamming with, you know, now um, online remotely uh, didn't haven't picked up their instruments in years. And this kind of provoked them back into rediscovering an old love, uh, rediscovering, you know, things that we used to do when we had more time. And mm -hmm. and it's actually a good thing. I can't see myself giving it up any ever again. I think I'll do this until they pull me out of this in a pine box. Yeah, it's it's funny. We just uh, we had a did a podcast uh, a couple of weeks ago with. Uh, uh, Jade Eagleson, he's a kind of rising country star, and uh, we kind of made the same reference how, you know, uh, playing an instrument is almost like a form of meditation in some ways, or you can just like, you come out of it feeling often refreshed unless you're really struggling mm -hmm. with something, right? Oh, definitely. It, it No, it really is. It's 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 my substitute for going to the gym or working out, or it's it really is a mental health sort of a thing, you know? Um yeah, and as I'm getting older, I'll be 60 this year. And as I'm getting older, I also realize the, you know, the the importance of keeping your mind active. Obviously, I read and write a lot, but this is a whole other thing. This is like doing mathematics with four limbs, mm -hmm. you know, to a beat. And so, you know, hopefully it'll keep me a, a little sharper, a little longer. Yeah, yeah, totally. And that brings us to our fifth question. And I was going to ask about uh, who you chat with, but since you mentioned photography and film i'm curious do, do you think film's going to make a comeback at at any point here because i i also spent a lot of time in the dark room in high school and i'm not sure if that's ever going to pay off at this point now but uh <laughs> i'm curious what your take is so in in 2000 so 22 years ago already i opened a school called prairie view school of photography and i ran it for 18 years until i sold it in 2018 and now it's gone 
to be part of a of, of a bigger organization of a community or of a private um, vocational institute. Um, and when we started it, I had been working again as a photographer for years before that, and I was well known as a as a darkroom printer, someone who was into the old school techniques. Um, and when I started the school, we had I think two computers and maybe a little tiny inkjet printer, but a massive darkroom where everybody learned the darkroom, including black and white and color processing. And then slowly, we managed as all the as some of the labs did. There were at that time there were probably a dozen labs in Winnipeg of of you know photo related um, lab you know developing labs. There were also all sorts of um, photo stores and whatnot. And most of them went the way of the dodo when digital hit. But we and a couple of other labs managed to to you know sort of work through that transition, um, and so we worked to the point where by 2018, you know, 90, 70, well, 80 percent of everything the students did was digital. However, I was insistent the entire time that they still learn the 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 um, uh, the darkroom stuff. And at first, when digital came in, everybody flocked to it, and they thought. Oh man, you know the, the the analog stuff, the the old fashioned photography is is you know for losers. Nobody wants it. But then slowly it started building up to the point where it's there. It still is there. You can still buy film cameras. I still have some. I still shoot the odd roll of film and develop it. And there are more and more young people, especially getting into it. So there's an entire movement. It will never ever ever go away. Heck. I do processes in my basement that went away in 1890s that haven't really been done on a commercial basis since the 1890s. I coat my own paper with silver nitrate and I coat it with platinum palladium products, you know, stuff that have gone you know, away for over 150 years. Um, so it'll never go away. It's just getting a little bit more expensive and a little bit more difficult. But if you just go online, I mean, just Google analog photography and that is a rabbit hole that'll keep you busy for the next you know, three decades. It's, it's a fascinating thing and people love it. And there's so many cool ways and so many cool hybrid stuff where you can shoot a roll of film and then there's apps on your, um, so if you've got a bunch of negatives, there's apps on your iPhone that can turn them into positives and then you can hmm. print them and oh, all sorts of stuff. It's, it's, it's endless really. So if you're interested in film photography, go hmm. for it. It's just a fascinating, really, really cool thing. And you can get cameras cheap now. Take. It's a, it's a scary thought for me to to imagine the days back in film photography because we've we've we uh kind of dabble into the photography scene and um um certainly taking a bigger leap into the the videography side of things and the amount of shitty photos and shitty videos that i've done in the past i couldn't imagine the pile of waste negatives that i would have at the end of the day I have this, uh, I have probably in my archives here close to a hundred thousand negatives um, from from my years, and those are mainly my personal ones. All my commercial stuff, obviously, you know, is probably with clients and and wherever. But yeah, I mean, I've got tons, and then so I've I rarely now I still do once in a while I'll shoot a roll of film, but rarely because all I'm, I'm doing is adding it to the pile of stuff I still have to print or scan or do something with. So I've I've sort of slowed down, and most of my photography that I do for my books. Is done with digital cameras um, because they're faster, more accurate, um, and I could rattle off ten thousand shots in a day, mm -hmm. um, you know, for the price of a CF card or for nothing, basically, compared to back in the day when I would go out and shoot. You know, literally, I remember one year, my film purchasing where I had to buy film and process it. So in other words, buy the film, send it to a lab, have it developed, and then printed, and then you know, sent to the customer. My film printing bill alone was over a hundred thousand oh. dollars. 
in, in one year. And that was a commercial, I was a commercial photographer, obviously doing, you know, catalog shoots and fashion and advertising and billboards and stuff, but it was a massive amount of money. Whereas now, admittedly, I got, you know, lots of money sunk into cameras and computers and their storage. It's not cheap, but for me to go out, you know, in a day, I want to go photograph a field trial. Um, well, you know, in the film days, I knew I was into it for about a grand worth of, you know, of film and processing. Um, nowadays, I can go and shoot twice as many, four times as many photographs, and it costs me the same as if I took one. Mm-hmm. Wow. Time, the times, they are changing, I think, old Bob yep. once said. Well, and you survived the five burners. Mind you, we haven't had anyone who's passed out during those questions yet, but maybe one day we will. <laughs> um, so congratulations. Thank you. We're going to we're gonna talk some dogs. We're going to talk some, some books here, and... Um, you, you do chat about it quite a bit also on your, your podcast there, Hunting Dog Confidential. But just for our listeners to, I think it would be real helpful. You, you didn't just start writing books on pointing dogs and uh, the, the history therein. You, you, where did you get your start? What inspired you, Craig, to, to down the journey of the the pointing dog? Because I'm just starting mine here, and I'll be honest, it's a... Uh, it's a bit of a quirky path sometimes. So, and there's lots of learning to be had, but uh, you've click, clearly taken the bull by the, the horns here, proverbially speaking. Uh, how did you get that start? You know, my main motivating, my main motivation or the motivating factor when I first started out was frustration, to be honest with you. Um, I'd always wanted a dog. I've been a hunter all my life. Um, and when I was a young man and, and, you know, young boy and a teenager and a young man, I was the dog for my dad. He'd shoot something and I'd fetch it. Um, when I got a gun, he or I would shoot it, but I'd still have to go and fetch the damn thing, right? And that was, or, you know, flush it out of the bush or whatever. So I've been hunting all my life, and um, I moved to Quebec um, to go to university, and I met my wife, and we moved around, and we were here. We lived a little in Europe. We lived in Quebec. We lived in Manitoba, but always in apartments, and so we couldn't get a dog, but I always knew that I wanted a dog. Um, I grew up around dogs, but they were farm dogs. My parents come from the little town of Libo, which is not far from you guys. Um, and they, um, had dogs around the farm, but they were always just there to bark. If, you know, somebody came up the driveway, that was their only job. They weren't, you know, maybe they'd heard the odd cow or something, but they weren't hunting dogs because hunting dogs cost money and they were expensive to train and feed. So you just had a farm dog. So fast forward, my wife and I finally buy a house and I bought a dog and, um, I bought a dog just because I wanted a dog and I had no real idea in terms of breeds. In fact, I decided on the breed almost by accident, um, you guys are Manitobans, so you might know of this of the town of Ashern. Um, Ashern oh, yeah. used to be famous. It's not famous anymore for it, but it used to be famous for a, a mecca for chicken shooting, i.e. sharp-tailed grouse. In fact, there is a statue of a sharp-tailed grouse. A very right, large statue. Very large statue right next to the Sharp-Tail Motel um, <laughs> in, in, in Ashern, Manitoba. We, we've been patrons of that hotel, just so you know, too. Uh... Oh yeah, yeah. Craig. And, it, it's uh, still there. I'm just gonna butt in here for a second too, and, and uh, for anybody listening outside of Manitoba who's not familiar with like small town Manitoba, uh, almost every little small town has their their own statue of some sort. Some have like a yep. mushroom, some have a curling rock, some have mosquito, uh, a mosquito. There's a snake one, garter snake, and Ashern is the sharp tail grouse. We have a goose in Lundar. Mm-hmm. The mosquito is in Kamarno. It comes from the Ukrainian name or Ukrainian word Kimarn, which is uh, mosquito. 
Um, the snake, which is uh, right near the snake pits of Narciss, is actually located in Inwood, Manitoba, mm-hmm. uh, because there's a ton of snakes up there. But yeah, it's great. And so we stayed, my friends and I, before we had dogs, we would actually stay at that motel and and we would just walk around. You know, we would go out to the fields and you'd look for a bluff or two. You'd look for a line of trees. You'd get permission from a local farmer and you'd walk around with your cooey single shot and rubber boots from Canadian Tire and you'd, you know, hopefully push up a grouse and shoot it. That was how we hunted. And so we would stay the whole weekend and we usually get a few birds and have a few beers and have some fun. And then on one occasion we were there and this car pulled up and I've told this story before. So I'll make a shorter version of it. But I I mean, you know, imagine these, these prairie kids with holes in their jeans, all of a sudden this, like, you know, this 40 foot long car, it was probably a suburban of some sort pulls up. It's brand new and shiny and it pulls up into the parking lot and the doors open and four ginormous Americans, I mean, all of us probably weighed 100 pounds each. And these ginormous Americans come out of their cars and they are decked out in all Orvis gear. You know what I'm saying? Like they got the shooting glasses and shooting hats and they got the the gloves. They've got the whole bit. And I'm like, holy shit. I'd never in my life seen a hunter like that, you know. And then one guy opens the back door and out pops two dogs. And one of them was brown and white. It had spots. White dog with brown spots. And the other one was kind of a silver taupey gray. And I asked them what kind of dogs they were, because to me, they looked like rock stars. They looked unbelievable. And he said one was a German something and the other one something, something Weimariner. Uh, Who knows? I couldn't even pronounce. I didn't know what they were. The next day, we went out hunting and came back, had a few beers. And those guys didn't come back till really early the next morning, like in, in the middle of the night, really. When we got up, I asked them, hey, you guys were out, you know, tying one on at the local pub. What were you doing? He says, no, we were looking for the damn dog. I said, what? He says, yeah, one of my dogs got lost and we were looking for him. I don't know if they found him. I can't remember, but they were looking for a dog and they only had one with them and it was the gray one. And I thought, okay, I want a dog that comes back. I I want one like that. I don't want them brown and white ones. (laughs) They disappear. (laughs) I want me a silver one because that are the gray one. They come back. So I looked it up. It's a Weimaraner. Uh, years later, I remembered that we finally got a house, and I'm looking around, and I found a breeder of Weimaraners in uh, in Minnesota, who happened to have a litter, and I figured, all right, I'm getting one of those dogs, and I got one. And to be perfectly honest, I was super lucky. Weimaraners are a risky, risky breed. There are some fantastic Weimaraners out there, and then there's a boatload of absolute crap. Um, there's way too many Weimaraners out there that are just nice dogs pretty dogs you know they might make a family pet but they have no hunt you know i was lucky my first dog had a lot of hunt in him and i had he ended up being a really good dog but he's the one that sparked my interest so i i figured okay all i knew was the brown one i realized that was a german short hair pointer and the wine runner there must be other ones out there right so off to the library we go and i started researching sure enough i found the occasional book that mentioned a setter and a pointer and i learned about this or that other breed but then after a while, I started realizing that some of the information was contradictory. One book would say one thing, another book would say something else. One book would mention this weird other breed of Dradhar or Wirehair or whatever, whatever, and then I could never find any more information on it. So I thought, geez, there's got to be at least one source. Again, this is pre-internet. You couldn't just Google this stuff. I thought, there's got to be a book somewhere where I can find out about all these dogs. And I looked and looked. I searched everywhere, couldn't find it. So one day I sat down and said, you know, screw it. I'm going to write one. That's it. This book needs to be written. I'm going to find out for myself about these dogs. 
I'm going to contact breeders. I'm going to travel to these places. I'm going to see them. I'm going to photograph them. And damn it, I'm going to write a book about it. And it only took me, you know, 10 years. But I did it. That's, yeah. And that's for volume one, correct? That's volume one, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and now I'm on volume two 10 years later after uh, that. Man, that's outstanding. Uh, um, funny story about the Weinheimers too. Um, how I initially got into my dog Willie there, which I showed you from Graham Point Proven Kennels, the Irish Setter, was I I was we were initially looking for a lab and that fell through. And I was just scrolling social media and saw a very handsome photo of a Weinheimer and didn't have any knowledge of the breed whatsoever. And I sent this photo to Graham saying, hey, should I get one of these? And Graham's response was immediately call me. Yep. So <laughs> um, I, I was glad I did because I, I, I ended up with a very nice setter. And I, I've also heard that the, those other dogs can be difficult to to train at times too. So it's just it's interesting how how the breeding world works and how the dog world kind of has has its own energy about it in some ways sometimes you know i in my book um on the continentals one of the things i do is i describe every breed's history you know and i i describe what they look like and how they hunt and 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 one of the things i do is i give them a sort of a a, a risk profile in other words what is the risk of getting a good one versus a bad one um uh, how easy it is, how easy is it to find a litter and pick a pup and find a good one? And all breeds have a ratio. What I determine is that every breed has a ratio. In other words, there are certain breeds where like 99% of them are going to hunt. That's not to say they're going to be the best in the world or the best looking or the best behaved, but 99, like it would be really hard, for example, to find a litter of poodle pointers, reach in and find a pup that's not going to hunt. All right. Same thing with, let's say, a large Munsterlander or uh, a, a German Drathard, you know, bred and, and, and tested to the, the German levels. It'd be hard to find a bad one. They exist, but it's hard to find them. Ninety nine percent are going to hunt for you uh, with wine runners and other breeds. Uh, you know, Vishlas come to mind and there's other breeds. Man, it's the other way around. Like you really, really have to look long and hard to find a good one. When you do find a good one, they're they're outstanding dogs. I've had some fantastic wine runners in my life. But I went to Lubbock, Texas, and to Germany, um, you know, and Michigan to get them. They're not available, you know, as easily as other ones. You really, really have to understand how to find a good one. Because if you just picked any litter anywhere and reached in to pick a pup, man, the chances of getting a good one are astronomical against you. I feel like we're going to dig into some of the the histories of the breeds, I think, a little bit in the future here. But I'm curious, did you have any lessons from that? Do you remember any life lessons from that first pup that you Oh, that yeah. Had? Oh, yeah. No, his name was Felix. Um, Felix. And um, he, what I learned is that everybody wants or is very proud if they have a smart dog. Everybody, oh, I want a really smart dog. No, 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 no. <laughs> I, no, 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 no. That's what I learned. You do not want a smart dog. That goddamn dog was smarter than me. Uh, he was, you know, sort of Einstein evil genius level bright. Um, and so as a newbie trainer, uh, as a newbie dog owner, um, that dog would learn anything with one repetition, good or bad, right? He, he would learn it good or bad. And I remember the very first time, uh, so the first year I had him, the first season I had him, I knew nothing about it. I just, I would take him out and do exactly what I did without a dog. I'd walk down trails and look for chickens. And I was with my dad one time and Felix is maybe eight months old, seven months old. 
and running down a trail and he's running around, running around. All of a sudden he just freezes and locks up on point, which I didn't even know what it was. And my dad goes, Hey, what's your dog doing? I said, <laughs> I think, I think he's on point. We walk up, Rouse flushes up, we shoot it. It fell across a little Creek. He swims across the Creek, picks it up and brings it to us. We were both absolutely amazed. Like, Holy smokes. Have you like, I couldn't believe what I just saw. And that's all I did with them until the next year I met some people who were quote unquote trainers, people who wanted to show me how to do it the right way. And they tried to teach me about woe and they tried to do this and they tried to do that. And then they put down a soaking wet chucker partridge. Let's see your dog point that. Well, my dog has never seen anything but a wild bird. I probably shot, you know, 20 birds over him that first season or something. I don't know. And so he smells this chucker, which smells like death or wounded <laughs> and is wet and isn't moving. And he looks back at me and goes, dude, look, I'll, sh I'll save you the shotgun shell. Watch this. Goes in, picks it up and brings it back to me and sits down and hands it to me. Going, hey, that's easy. <laughs> this one's so already dead. Yeah, you know, it's like, come on, what am I supposed to do? Well, of course, then I'm supposed to do all kinds of training and wool breaking and collars and this and that. And I almost ruined that dog because of that. Fortunately, an older gentleman, um, and by this time, the internet was a thing, an older gentleman who had been training dogs all of his life, he, he diagnosed my, my problem and uh, said, yeah, I can, because again, by the next season, my dog was bumping and chasing and not obeying at all. He, he, he thought that he could catch every bird in the country. So this older guy solved my problem. Do you want to hear how he did it? Because this might actually help people listening today. We're all ears. I'm sure everyone else is too. Okay. Because this is my philosophy that I've had ever since with all my dogs. Number one, I'm a really bad trainer. Uh, guys like Graham and others are brilliant trainers and I'll never be that guy. Uh, mainly because I'm not very good at it, but also because I'm not particularly interested in it. So to this day, I do not train my dogs. Yes, of course, I train them not to poop on the carpet and train them, you know, to, to come at heel and things like that. But I don't do any of the high-level training. All I do is what the French have done ever since they've invented the pointing dog is I hunt a lot and I shoot a lot. That's it. And my dogs learn. I let the birds teach them. Because the old guy says to me, he goes, all right, Craig, describe the problem of your dog. And I described it in graphic detail about how this dog is an asshole. I ain't, nah, he doesn't do Oh, I'm mad. I'm pissed off at this dog. He says, all right, I got the cure for you. He says, do you have a check cord? I says, of course I got a check cord. All right. You got an e-collar? Yep. You got a whistle? Yep. You know, he names all the equipment that you need, you know, bird launches that you got all that stuff. I mean, yeah, yeah, I got all that stuff. He goes, okay, the last thing you need, he says, you need about a four inch strip of duct tape. Um, you know, just your regular duct tape. You need about four inches of it. Great. I says, okay, I got that too. He says, all right, here's what you do. He says, you got wild birds. I said, yeah. He goes, well, there's your cure. I'll tell you what you do. You drive out to where you can be sure that your dog is going to get into wild birds. I knew a place, buddy's farm. I knew there's wild birds out there. I kind of knew where they hung out. So he says, all right. What you do is you pull up to the spot where you're going to let your dog out. You open the door, you let your dog out. You take the check cord, you leave it in the car, you take that whistle, you shove it out your butt, and you take that tape, and you paste it over your goddamn pie hole. And he says, and then you go and follow that dog and say nothing. If it busts a bird, you say nothing. If it busts another, you say nothing. If it busts a hundred, you say nothing. But then when it points, when that bird gets up, you shoot it period, end of story, and you will cure your dog. And that's exactly what I did. It was the hardest thing in my life. The first, because the first session was a disaster. The second one went a little bit better. It wasn't until I did that maybe three times and the dog had busted probably 20 birds or more over, you know, three day period that he pointed. And then he pointed, bird got up and I, I'm a terrible shot, but I was lucky. I shot it. He fetched it to me and it literally 
that changed the game. That was it. Now, for the rest of that dog's life, he pointed every single bird he came across from snipe to woodcock to pheasants to whatever I was hunting, except chucker. He, he <laughs> to, to his dying day, he would always go and pick up a chucker. He just he just knew it. That that, that dog was too damn smart for me. Um, so I couldn't run him in trials. I couldn't put him in tests. I just you know, but he was a he was a darn good hunting dog. So, the moral of the story is that I think that there is. I think that training your dog is a really good idea. I think that a lot of trainers can give you really good advice and really good systems and ways to train your dogs. But you need to understand that there is an inherent danger when you train a dog. It's really hard to actually screw up a pointing dog. You have to work at screwing it up. Like you actually have to actively do something to screw it up. If you simply do nothing, in other words, if you simply follow that dog around wait till it points and then only shoot if it points a bird. If that's the only thing you ever do in the entire life of that dog, he'll be okay. He might not win a trial. He might not be the most obedient dog you've ever seen, but you'll hunt over him and you'll have a good time. You'll come back with a smile on your face. So that that's, that's to this day, how I train my dogs. I, I literally don't train them. I hunt them. That's the French method. So, <clears throat> It, it kind of is. The, the, the French are the opposites of the Germans. With the Germans, they breed their dogs, expecting them to take their doctorate degree at age 18 and, or 18 <laughs> months and, and, you know, to train them on a weekly basis at organized training things. And that's fantastic. The Germans have an unbeatable system. It's just world class, and they produce fantastic dogs that are bred and genetically hardwired to want to be and need to be trained. The French, on the other hand, they're, they want to go out. Lost you, Craig. Mm-hmm. to a pro but otherwise they'll just go out and just book an Englishman visited France in the 1800s and at that time English England was the dominant force in the world and they really looked down on the French they thought the French were dirty smelly peasants because only the rich English went over to France to hunt and this rich Englishman he wrote about his adventures and he said man those French have ugly dogs but I must admit they're pretty good he says but the only reason they're good is because the French hunt a lot and they kill a lot and yeah that's basically it Whereas the English were super proud of the fact that they have really well-trained dogs because they employed three professional dog trainers and spent a fortune on them. Whereas the French now, they just kind of went out and shot. They just, that's all they did. I've got a, I've got a buddy that definitely employs the French method now that you, uh, <laughs> that you mention it. So uh, I'll tell him that and let him know that he's doing things by, by one method or the other here. So uh, he'll be happy to hear that. And it's uh, it's it's funny you mention how quick these dogs learn because I can think of Willie's first uh, first action, first birds in the field this fall, and pointing some grouse. I actually they were he basically treed them like a bear, and then they yeah. got it they got out of the tree, and I shot them. And for the next the next two hours, he assumed that all chickens lived in the tree. <laughs> so he was looking vertically for, for, uh, the next little while. I didn't, I didn't make a huge deal of it, but, uh, it was, it's, it's funny to think just how, how smart they actually are and how they pick up on all these things. Yeah. Our, our job is really to just put them in a situation where the birds can teach them. We can never teach them as much as a bird can. And so our whole job is putting them where the birds can teach them a lesson. Everything else is, is gravy. Everything else is just sort of trimmings or, or, or fancy stuff put on top. And of course it's important for field trials, which are great activity. And same thing with NAVDA tests and all that stuff. I admire everybody who participates in them and does well in them. But again, hunting dogs really, somebody said to me, if you want a good dog to hunt elephants, it's going to take you a few elephants. 
And and that's really what it's about. It, it, it's kind of like you can't teach someone to swim without putting them in the water at some point in time. So that's that's really what I do because I don't really do much. I don't do any field trialing. I, I barely pass NAV the test at the, at the natural ability level. I hunt a lot. My wife and I hunt a lot. And really, our dogs learn by just doing the old-fashioned way. This kind of circles back to your work with pointing dogs, your, your first volume there. And you, you said that you needed to go and see these dogs hunt in their, in their habitat or, you know, these breeds where they originated from. I'm, I'm getting like the, the sense that the, the boots on the ground feel is so important for you. Can you say more about why you think this is so connected to what, that we just can study these dogs academically in a lab, let's say, let's pretend? Well, yeah, because again, I mentioned, you know, I was frustrated. I was frustrated that a lot of my sources were contradictory or they missed over, glossed over this part or, you know, basically, you know, I got to the point where I realized that a lot of the authors of these books had never actually seen the dogs that they were describing. They, They were just, they were writing out of their ass. You know, they were writing, they were just repeating stuff that they had read from other people who had clearly never seen these dogs. And so my you know, my great loves of my life are my wife, photography and travel and dog. So what better thing to do than combine all four of them? Why not travel with my wife to take pictures of dogs? Hey, you know, sign me up for that. Now, you know, I was a school teacher. I was at a French immersion school and then I was a commercial photographer. My wife has a job with the government. So we're not like independently wealthy people. Obviously, we had to save up our pennies over a period of time. And then we got enough. Every chance we got and every time we you know, met our goal of savings, we would head to Europe. Because I realized that in order for me to describe a German short air pointer, I should probably go to Germany and talk to the Germans. Um, obviously, I, I, I mean, I went to New Mexico to photograph dogs in the desert because the president of the GSP Club of the States lived in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Uh, I've seen GSPs everywhere from, you know, Saskatchewan to Quebec. But I, I needed to go to Germany. Um, because, and, and I needed to go to Brittany, which is a, a place in France. I wanted to go to Picardy where I've, you know, I, I wanted to go to these places because I wanted to find the authentic source information on these dogs and to understand where they come from. So, and, and some of these dogs don't exist outside their own native area. The double nosed, the Spanish double nosed pointer, uh, doesn't exist outside of Spain. I mean, there might be one in France or something, but. 99% of the population of the world of some of these breeds are in that country. And so we went to Spain and it, you know, after hunting over these dogs for a day, I realized why they look the way they look and why they hunt the way they hunt because of the terrain and the game that they hunt. I, I don't think that anybody can truly understand, for example, an English setter without seeing it running on the moors of Northern England or Scotland. Um, or a pointer without seeing it working those same birds in, in the British Isles. That's why I said earlier, I'd love to see an Irish setter in Ireland. I haven't yet. That's the one breed I haven't seen in its native land. Uh, all the others I've seen. And and so I, I didn't want to come off as just some guy that read a bunch of books, compiled a bunch of information, and put it out there like everybody else did. I wanted to make sure that everything I said wasn't me. I wasn't. When you read my book, it's not me saying this about this breed. It's, it's, it's me simply recording what people who have given their lives to those breeds have, have told me. Most of the breeders I've talked to about these dogs were in it for decades or, or were third generation of these people. A couple of guys I, I spoke to 
revived entire breeds. That Spanish double nose pointer I mentioned had gone extinct. Uh, and then in the 1980s, a guy who was doing his doctorate or his veterinary degree found a few odd remaining sort of relatives of those dogs and recreated the breed almost single-handedly. Well, that's the guy I interviewed, him wow. and his dad. And then same thing in France, the Brecht de Bourbonnet, which, by the way, there's one in Manitoba. I imported one for my friend. He's a great little dog. That breed was completely extinct as well. And then in the 1970s, a guy in France figured, no, I'm going to revive it or recreate it, and he did so. So I found him and interviewed him and photographed his dogs. So that was my main thing. I was just frustrated that a lot of the stuff we read about dogs didn't come from the real source. It was just hearsay that just kept getting repeated and repeated and, and, and getting wrong most of the time. Yeah, it makes me think of even just other forms of hunting too when we, we look at how regionally specific it, it needs to be and even the way you hunt like a white-tailed deer, for example, in Texas is so dramatically different than the way you would hunt in Manitoba that even a lot of the, the techniques, tips, and even I look at the way our culture around hunting, for example, our deer camp has evolved is dramatically different than in, in a lot of ways than what might occur in Texas or New Mexico or um, some of these access deer, right? So it's it's interesting to think just how interrelated not just the terrain but the culture and and the tools we use are all kind of this hodgepodge of the experience of hunting for us and uh yeah yeah that's true and that's one of the main focuses and the purposes that we've launched hunting dog confidential the magazine and, and the podcast um the thing that i i obviously i learned a lot about dogs and i realized a lot about dogs and i developed a a sort of a a point of view of dogs that I think is unique in that most breeders and most dog people focus like a laser on their line of dogs or their breed of dogs or their field trials or their nav or whatever they're doing, they focus and, and, and rightfully so. And I'm grateful for them. Those people do a fantastic job and they need to be laser focused on that litter out of that breed, out of that dog, out of that sire and that sort of thing. For me, I'm more like the guy that's at 30,000 feet. I'm not looking at the trees. I'm looking at not even just the forest. I'm looking at the whole damn continent of how things are. And so one of the things I realized is that dogs, and I've, I've written this before and I've said this before, but dogs basically, when we think about a dog breed, you've got an Irish setter. When you think about a dog breed, you have to understand that they're not natural creatures. They do not exist in nature. They didn't develop by evolution. They were created by man. They were created by us. We created these dogs. And any breed is nothing more than a physical manifestation of an idea that a certain group of people share. So you get enough people together that agree that this dog of this color that does this and looks like that and, and behaves like this is called a this. That's a breed. And those people don't exist in a vacuum. Those people exist in a culture. Those people typically share the same language. So the German breeds were developed in Germany by people speaking German, French in France and English in England. Same sort of thing. So you cannot really look at a dog breed separate from its culture. You, you, you can't look at it and say that this dog breed exists independently from, from the, 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 the terrain and the game and the hunters that created it. So if you really want to understand a dog breed, you really need to understand the culture that created them and then the culture that modified them or the culture that uses them today. Um, and once I realized that and started digging into that, that then became even more interesting than the dogs themselves was the culture. 
Um, an example I can give you is that in 2019, before COVID hit, we, my wife and I spent some time in England following field trials for pointers and setters. Now, people don't realize this, but English setters, which there are thousands of in the U.S. and tens of thousands in places like Italy and France, are almost extinct in England. In fact, they're on a vulnerable breed list in England. They are, there, there might be 200 or 250 English setters born in England every year. Um, so when we went there, we met up with this group of people who had English setters, Irish, Gordons, and Pointers. And we traveled around with them for a little while, going from trial to trial. And at the end of the day, I realized that that group of people was like a lost tribe in the Amazon that hadn't had contact with the outside world for the last, you know, forever. They were this little group of people that were left over from what had happened, what was happening in the 1800s and early 1900s. Yet they were still doing their own things and they were completely unknown by the world around them. We were in a pub, not 40 miles from the field trial. And a young guy heard our accent and said, hey, where are you from? We said, we're from Canada. Well, why are you in this neck of the woods? We said, well, we're watching a field trial. Well, what's a field trial? Well, it's where dogs run and, and this. what kind of dogs? English setters and pointers. No, oh, I've never heard of those before. This guy lived his entire life in England, 40 miles from where one of the major field trials was happening. He'd never heard of those dogs. So that culture, I found, was, was this, this unique little jewel of the thing that still existed. Whereas if you go to Germany or other places, I mean, it's obviously a bigger culture and better known. But when you mention the word culture, that's, that's what it's all about, is that dogs are the result or the product of a culture. Okay. Yeah. I had just written that down that dogs are almost like a form of cultural expression in some ways for They say more about the culture of hunting than they do in uh, maybe our, our technical knowledge or our um, the, the scientific understanding that we might express maybe in some ways, um, which is interesting to think of. Um, but that's just a random thought for me. I was wondering, can you say more about how important the like, the historical processes to all this or the, the, the process of understanding history, because like, I think there's, we get so caught up in our, our modern day kind of milieu and like what our, what our experience is and right here, right now, that it's often easy to, to get wrapped up in all the latest tips, gear and tech, as opposed to, to viewing like what, what is, what is the point of going over, where these dogs came from and why why they developed as they did and what the histories are there surely there's something we can extract from this i'm being a bit facetious but uh, i want i want to hear your take on it oh yeah no i mean it really is important to understand where these dogs came from and the culture that produced them because it can explain certain things that you're seeing in those dogs today um different dogs are the result are the are the products of different cultures and they they therefore have a different cultural baggage or background to them. They don't all learn the same way. They're not all trained in the same way. They don't all respond to the same stimuli in the same way because they have a long history of being hardwired or being bred or selectively bred to be a certain way. And that way that they are is informed or modified by the culture they come from. So I've already mentioned the, the German and French sort of split. If you look in my book, basically I divide. So I, the, the first volume is called the Continentals because it's only about the breeds that have been developed on continental Europe. So places like France and Germany, Italy, Spain, Portugal, Holland, Slovakia, Czech Republic, etc. The next volume, which is called volume two, are about the breeds that have been developed in uh, England, um, Scotland, uh, Wales, and Ireland. Um, and so those are the, the, 
the British or British and Irish breeds. So there's that that main divide. That's why the two volumes are there. But in volume one itself, I divide the continental breeds along the Rhine River. The Rhine River is a big river, like the Red River that runs through Manitoba. It runs across much of Europe, and it divides France and Germany. And on the west side, west and south of the Rhine River, you've got places like France and Italy and Spain and Portugal. On the other side, you've got Germany, Czech Republic, uh, Hungary, Hungary and, and Slovakia, etc., Austria. And those two cultures are vastly different in terms of how they hunt. Hunters are different in, each, in, in those two different places. So the dogs they produce are different. So, for example, um, f- on the west side, they are more like the English dogs. They're more like your Irish setter. They're basically bird dogs. The average hunter with a pointing dog in France and Italy and Spain and Portugal goes out to the field. He wants his dog to point. He wants to shoot a bird. And most of the time, he'll want it to fetch it. And that's sort of even optional. On the other side of the Rhine River, guys with pointing dogs rarely actually use them to point birds. In fact, the the average German hunter today will shoot more fox in a single year than he will pheasants or partridge in his lifetime. Um, I know and I've met German hunters there with really great, you know, quote unquote pointing dogs, you know, GSPs or wire hairs or whatever they are, that the only time they've ever seen their dog point was in a test. The rest of the time their dog has been dragging down boar or killing fox or the neighbor's cat. So (laughs) the expectations of those dogs are quite different because they come from different cultures. So if you ask me, how do I train the dog? Well, the first thing I'll ask you is what kind of dog is it? Where does it come from? What are the lines that have been, it's been bred from? And then I can give you sort of, you know, sort of things to think about. I write a lot on my blog and there is a really sort of an article that sort of talks to this point. If you look at my blog, my website is dogwilling.ca, all one word, dogwilling.ca. And there is an article on there called, you can use the search on the blog, just look under articles and blog. Use the search function to look for one called drive versus desire. And it is basically a reflection on my experience having German dogs and French dogs. And the German dogs are driven. In my view, these are dogs that are put on this earth to find game uh, like on a mission from God. The French dogs are put on this earth to find birds because, oh my God, that's fun. They are (laughs) desirous dogs. And, you know, sort of one of the um, analogies I give is kind of like thirst can be a drive or a desire. All right. So imagine it's a hot day um, and somebody puts a beer in front of you. Well, you're going to have a high desire to drink that beer and a high drive to drink that beer. But then if somebody puts a fly in that beer, your desire goes away. But if you're thirsty enough and the drive is strong enough, you'll drink it anyway. So training a German dog means you could probably beat the thing over the head with a two by four. It's still going to do its mission because it'll say just, okay, okay, boss, I'm going to do it. The French dogs, on the other hand, they do it until the fun is gone. They'll do it till the, the cows come home as long as they're having a ball doing it. But you drop a fly in their beer, yeah, not so much. So these high-pressure training techniques that work for a German dog, probably not going to work for other types of dogs. And it's simply because of where they come from and how they've been developed, basically. The, the, some dogs are on the softer side. Some dogs are on the harder side. Some dogs are more driven for fur. Some dogs are more driven for feather. And that is a reflection of where they come from. It's so interesting you mentioned that because the the – the difference with the German and the French kind of methodologies there, because the, you, you talk about the French hunting dogs and it, it almost reminds me of their, their culture in some ways with the way they enjoy meals, for example, where their, mm-hmm. their meals are more about the, the experience and the um, deriving as much pleasure from the food as possible, as opposed to just getting it down your throat. 
um which yeah it's yeah it's true and there's a, another subtle sort of difference between the german and the french culture and in the hunting culture in that hunters in france and like i say west of the rhine and in england and places anywhere west of the rhine hunt only for pleasure that's their own and they breed dogs and they they train dogs and it's only a sport it's a pleasure it's a pastime in germany they do the same they love it and the germans they'll enjoy their meal just as much as a french person does but the difference is in germany there's another layer to what's going on with their dogs. German hunters are not just guys with guns that enjoy going out and, and taking game and eating it. They do that, but a German hunter plays a different role in their culture. A German hunter has a moral and a legal and an ethical obligation under their system to be a forester or to be a, to participate in forestry. So in France, it's kind of like here. You can get a license fairly easily. You do some hunter safety. You do a few things. You're done. In Germany, it takes you up to 10 months of evening classes to get a license. It's very expensive, but you basically do a mini degree in forestry. So you're not only learning gun safety and, and you know, how to shoot properly and what you're you know, identifying game. You're learning things about trees and growth and crops and, and, and all that sort of a system because their whole system is designed that hunters play a more formal role in their culture than than we do in ours um of course their hunters are you know gas station attendants and doctors and dentists like everybody else is but again once you become a hunter you you become you're 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 sort of put in a different light um than you are in other countries and so their dog breeding and dog training is tied into that their dogs must be trained to a certain level they have laws that say you cannot hunt certain species in certain ways without a dog so once the law is involved, once the, the, the authorities say that you must do X, Y, and Z, well, then they have to put systems in place to ensure that those are there. And so German clubs breed really good dogs because they're good breeders and they like breeding, but also because the government says that hunters must have a dog that does X, Y, and Z. So, so you multiply that or you, you look at that and put that over 150 years of tradition and you've got a whole different world out there, man. It's a whole other thing. We have a ton in common. I go there, and it's fantastic. They're just like us. You, you know, you shoot the breeze, and you have a few beers and some shops, and you have a great time. But you cannot forget the fact that they're operating under a whole different set of guidelines and a whole different set of expectations than everybody else. And so their dogs reflect that. Man, that's that's interesting to hear, too. And just it's it's almost in some ways opposite of uh, what we can do here in Canada, which is there's certain styles of hunting where you can't have a dog with you, obviously, but it's, it's interesting to think too. Cause again, we look at that historical perspective. I, I'm, I'm looking at like a, a whiskey glass I have here of a, what I'm presuming is an old English upland hunter with probably a, a black powder shotgun, uh, dusting some pheasants and i think that that's the classic form of bird dog hunting but really what what i'm hearing from some of your past work here too craig is that our our modern understanding of, of bird dog hunting is quite a narrow one and that these these dogs have been in relationships with us for a very long time and that there there were a variety of ways and methodologies to not just harvest birds but all kinds of animals using dogs Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the modern pointer and setter and the modern dogs that we have are only as old as modern breech-loading shotguns, basically. Um, before then, they were used in different ways. They were used with nets. One of the, my favorite ones is I have an illustration in my new book coming out of what's called bird batting and low-belling. 
And what they would do is they would go at night, they would find a place where they're roosting and they would um, burn torches because the, the it was almost like jacklighting. They would jacklight birds, except with bats. And the bats looked like big tennis rackets. So you'd get a bunch of guys and you'd find out where the birds are roosting. And then you'd go there and light these big torches that would dazzle the birds. And then you'd beat the hell out of them with 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 tennis rackets basically Jesus. that's how they took them you know or they would put glue on the branches something they still do in france to this day um they would catch them in nets as they cross certain rivers or places like that yeah they were very uh, resourceful in the way they they got it but but all of the dogs behaviors we have today stem to those days when they had to lie down on point so that you could put the net over top of them or that they had to you know we've lost a type of a pointing dog um, that used to be called a circling dog. In fact, they didn't point, they circled. They would find where the bird is and they would like a border collie circling a herd of sheep. They would just circle around that place. So a guy with a crossbow could find out where the birds were and shoot them on the ground. Wow. wow. And then, so we're also in a situation here. You, you started in Europe. Can you, did you start there because they have great food and that's where the wife wanted to go? Or <laughs> is there like a Mecca of pointing dogs that I'm unaware of? Uh, why, why, why did you start in Europe? Because all of our pointing dogs come from there. Um, the, the pointing dogs were developed in, in a region which is now the borderlands between Spain and France and, and, there was, and, and Italy, uh, sort of the Pyrenees Mountains and sort of where Italy, France and Spain kind of meet up. That's where the pointing dogs were first uh, developed. And then every single breed of pointing dog in the world came from there. They all descended from those dogs, um, from the from the basic rootstock of those dogs. Um, so they they grew throughout France, and then they went up into um, into Germany and Holland and places like that. And then eventually they got into England, um, and then over to America. So we started there because that's where they're all from. North Americans have never produced a native breed of pointing dog. Um, there used to be things called native pointers and setters, but they were descendants of pointers and setters imported from England. So yeah, there are no North American pointing dogs, although it could be argued, uh, you could make a very strong case for the fact that any pointing dog that comes to North America after a few generations become North Americanized. We, we change them here. We, we modify them over time. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about that because what the, how we initially connected was through a Facebook group that I saw you make a post on about how we're both from Manitoba and how Manitoba has kind of a unique history in, in the North American pointing dog world. Um, can you, can you explain a little bit about what that history is and why, why it's significant to the, to the rest of the, the pointing dog world? Oh, for sure. And and what I'll say is that I can give you the sort of short rundown right now, but we should totally do another episode just on it because just for Manitoba listeners, because it's really, really fascinating. Okay. First of all, let's go back. Let's go back to like the 1860s, 1870s. Um, Manitoba has just become a province um, and Winnipeg is booming. Um, in fact, by about 1900, Winnipeg was one of the fastest growing places in North America, had more millionaires per capita uh, than anywhere else. It was the Chicago of the North. We had the grain barons, families like the Richardsons who were still around. We had um, the Ashdowns who had Ashdown Warehouse. They used to live there, actually, downtown. Um, we, we had um, uh, people like Thomas Johnson. Thomas Johnson worked for a company called the Galt Company, which uh, used to be a warehouse and shipping company. Uh, here in, in Winnipeg, massive company. And he was rich. I mean, he was simply a rich dude. And he had a shooting lodge in the Delta Marsh, and he loved pointers and setters. And it just so happened that around that time, okay, we're talking the late 1880s through the 1890s and into the early 1900s, Americans 
developing their pointers and, uh, and setters in the deep south, mainly pointers, but setters as well in the deep south, realized it just got too hot in the summer. So where could they go and get their dogs on wild birds in, in July and August of the year to prepare them for the field trial season that starts in September? Well, Manitoba and Saskatchewan. Um, they were at the end of a railway line that came all the way up here. Uh, it was a booming town, and there were rich dudes, like really rich dudes that were into this, including a guy named Thomas Johnson. And so for a while, Thomas Johnson was one of the main movers and shakers, um, breeding and field trialing pointers and setters and running them in places like Silver Heights and Stony Mountain and uh, just south of the city in uh, um, Morris. And uh, what's that place just outside of the city now? Um, oh, anyway, just like uh, just outside what's now outside the perimeter highway. Um, uh, you know, St. Adolph, they ran trials out there. Eventually they've moved further east, I'm sorry, further west to the area around Melita and Broomhill. And it became a Mecca. Um, for many, many years, there was a uh, chicken championship run uh, out of Broomhill. And in fact, the very first pointer to ever win the national championship, because up till then it was all setters. Setters were dominant through the 1880s, 1890s, until the early 1900s. The first pointer to ever win the national championship was named Manitoba Rap. Um, and uh, Becky Broomhill, uh, <laughs> named after Broomhill, Manitoba, was was another uh, major player in that time. So, yeah, I mean, it was everybody knew if, if you were in the field trial world and you lived in Memphis, Tennessee, or you were running dogs outside of Chicago, or you were, you know, the winner of the national field trial championship down in Grand Junction, Tennessee, you knew exactly where Manitoba was. Because that's where all the dogs were broke, and that's where all the dogs were trained, and that's where they all got their experience. And a lot of champions came out of Manitoba. Unfortunately, that scene died. Um, it was relatively intact until the 1980s, when unfortunately um, a movement called MASH, M-A-S-H, Manitobans Against the Harassment of Sharptails, or against her sharptail harassment, formed lobbied the government and got all the trainers and field trial guys kicked out of Manitoba. They all moved over to Saskatchewan. What? Only two were left, <laughs> uh, Colvin Davis and Robin Gates. Uh, they were grandfathered in because their father and grandfather had been doing it since the early 1900s. And they're the last ones. Uh, Robin Gates sadly passed away a couple years ago. The last one is Colvin Davis. Colvin and Maisie are friends of mine. I visited them several times out at Broomhill. They've got a place out there, which is fantastic. Because of COVID, they haven't been there for the last two years. But the Manitoba Chicken Championship is still, to this day, a qualifying championship for the North American uh, Nationals. Um, so it's kind of a bittersweet story. But Thomas Johnson uh, is buried at uh, Brookdale uh, Cemetery, I believe, off Main Street. Or the one off Main Street, can't remember the name of it, here in Manitoba. He was, again, a famous mover shaker that once he died just kind of disappeared off the that whole thing kind of disappeared and now people in manitoba don't realize that that people to this day you you go down to thomasville um georgia you know and talk to guys like darrell smith who's, who's doing some wonderful work down there and others all time you know his buddies are all time field trialers they'll know where manitoba is they know and they'll know where broom hill is they've heard of it because it's just it figures so largely in the history of pointing dogs in north america but Locally, people have never even heard about it. They they don't even understand it. All right. Glad you brought first yeah, go ahead, first, first point of action uh, after we wrap this podcast up is schedule the next one to 
to chat about this. this oh, uh, I've got lots of, I've got lots of archival. I've got archival. You know, there. If you go back in the Free Press and the Tribune and all the old the Brandon Sun newspaper archives, there's article after article about this, about you know, and and you look at the old field trialers and they write their biographies and their stories and all of them talk about Manitoba. And all of them talk about Pearson, Manitoba, and Broomhill, and Reston, and those whole areas in southwestern Manitoba. Those were, those were famous in their day among those guys. But that just all just, just faded away. Hmm. Willie just came up to me here. I think he's sad that he's heard that the there was such a hit to the Upland game. <laughs> Uh, industry in Manitoba here once upon a time. <laughs> but it's interesting you mentioned that because I, I, I hear guys like Graham talk and some of the other, uh, let's just call them chicken heads in the, in the province, um, say things like, oh man, we're, we're going to, we're bringing it back. We're going to make it big again. And I, I, I was never really sure what that meant, but I kind of got the sense that like upland hunting was not on the same scale as like we see like waterfowling and uh even even deer hunting in manitoba but this 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 kind of makes sense now and it, it's baffling to me that an organization like the manitobans against sharp tail harassment would have <laughs> any traction whatsoever but um yeah, clearly... their, main ar- their main argument was that um they the field trailers made the chickens too wild so that they couldn't get close to them in the hunting season um, and Colvin, when I had told him that, he said, it's the most ridiculous thing ever. He says that we never, ever, ever fired shotguns around the, do- the, the birds. We fired little cap guns. He says, because any chicken in the pan is one less I got to train dogs on. So he said, there were, <laughs> and, and he, and he lived through the entire thing. So he'd been there since the 1960s. And then, um, Mr. Gates, the senior was there since probably the 1930s or forties. So he'd lived through it. And he saw that after all the field trials left, the actual chicken population declined in that area simply because nobody was taking care of them. All the locals took care of the chickens. All mm-hmm. the locals made sure that they had cover and shelter and, and food just because they knew the field trailers were there. And then and then when that passed, I mean, they tried. I, I think the mayor from all those mayors from all those towns came up to Winnipeg and said, listen, you kick all these guys out. Do you realize how much gas they buy in my town and how many you know dollars worth of groceries they buy? They spend the entire summer here with horses and dogs and helpers it was a huge blow to that community but i guess the people in that group had some pull with the government that was in power at the time and they got it passed and then despite efforts since then it's never been allowed back and and the winner and all that was places like mortlock saskatchewan or other areas in saskatchewan where all those guys just left and went west (laughs) and took all their money and all their you know you know efforts out to another province which was just you know, and now to this day, you go out there, you'll never see another guy hunting chickens out there. There's just, you know, all those guys that wanted all those chickens for themselves. Well, they kind of got what they wanted for a year and that was it. Yeah, oh, man. Talk about ripple effects. And you, you, you think about too, how even, I, I never would imagine that running a dog trial could be a, a rebellious act, but in some ways what's, what's occurring now with uh, folks trying to get these trials back online seems to be just that. Um, you know, kind of an act of recreating history in some ways at the same time, kind of reigniting a spark, I would imagine. I think that it's it's more than just reigniting things or, or re- reliving things. I think that we are living through an era. See, what you have to understand, I just mentioned the 1880s, 1890s, 1900s. This was at the tail end of the Industrial Revolution. So the most famous setter breeder in the world, I was writing about him today, Edward Laverick, right? He invented the basically the father of the modern English setter. 
He was born in 1800. He died in 1877. In 1800, there were no railways, right? You have to cross the ocean in a sailing ship. There were no steamships. There were no daily circular newspapers or magazines. There was no photography. There was not, by the time he died, the world had changed completely. By the time he died, he could take a train from one end of England to the next. He could mail a letter that would take half a day to get from here to there. He could travel across the ocean on a steam liner. He could send a telegraph. He could take a photograph. All of the dogs that we have are results of became the breeds they are today in that period of the 1870s to the 1900s, let's say. The golden age of bird dogs because of revolutions in technology in understanding of genetics of understanding of science of breeding of animals i mean it was when when he was born in 1800 the world was not much different than it was a thousand years before by the time he died the world had changed completely we now are living through a similar time everything has changed since the late 1990s 2000 the internet has changed everything. Our society has changed radically. And our dogs and our dog games and everything we do with them and about them is going to go through different changes. All of our organizations, registries, pedigrees, tests, trials, all of that stuff is, is in the really hard, difficult time of change. Eventually, we're going to emerge into a better world, into a better system, into, into even more opportunities. But for now, it's growing pains, man. It's it's really terrible um, right now. American Field, one of the oldest newspapers in the United States um, that was published weekly about dog field trials was just sold. Uh, they shut down for a while and then they were sold to the UKC. Field trials everywhere are having trouble finding grounds to run their dogs on. Um, the numbers of people getting into the sport are declining. It's It's a very difficult time, but I'm an eternal optimist. And I think that at the end of the day, we're going to find something new. And we're going to find something that fits our society today and have just as much fun and develop dogs just as they did in the old days, but in our own way. There's no sense in trying to, you know, put on a cowboy hat from 1901 and try and do exactly what they did back then. But we can certainly take what they did and build on it to build a better and brighter future. I've always felt that there's this pragmatic vein to hunting and that it, a lot of it is connecting to the, the outdoors and sourcing your food. But there's at the heart of it, I think a lot of us are just romantics. And, and um, you know, we're going to be out there slinging arrows, casting dry flies, and uh, as you described it, uh, chasing around birds with perhaps like one of the most calorie calorie inefficient methods of harvesting your meat <laughs> yeah. uh, is with another dog and uh but there there's got a there's something almost it almost seems primal to me with the the relationship with that those animals when we look at uh how we interact with them and the traditions and stuff that have evolved over millennia i'm assuming in some ways to uh to to define our humanity so I, I think you're spot on in the sense that we're, we're going to find new ways to define it. I'm just really curious to see what they're going to look like. Um, I'm even thinking of like, there's been a lot of family unrest, I'm sure, in modern times with a lot of these uh, like 20, what is it, 23andMe or these these family tree analysis mm -hmm. here where mm -hmm. uh, people are finding out grandpa wasn't actually grandpa and things like that. So <laughs> I, I'm wondering if the, the sporting dog world is going to undergo a, a similar kind of... Uh, turmoil as well in that regard just in the sense that I've, I've always wondered like the i know a lot of these lines are pure but like 
how pure are they? And like, when you're, when you're looking at breeding a dog, like I myself know that I could never select the right trait. I would land up breeding something that was maybe potentially horribly disfigured. <laughs> and, uh, um, I just, I, I gotta wonder like, how do these breeders actually make it happen and what the future of breeding looks like now that we're kind of in this age of just so much information. Well, it's going to change. Basically, it's going to change. And I think that a lot of inconvenient truths are going to come out. Um, it's been well known for, for forever that there is no such thing as a pure breed of dog and that pedigrees are are vaguely, you know, sort of reliable. Now that we have DNA testing, they, they can become much stricter in terms of accepting certain things and, and testing the parentage of, of this and that. But it's, it's going to change. I really don't know. Um, the French are the masters of breeding dogs. Um, sort of behind the barn and um, and adding a little bit of this and adding a little bit of that, but it doesn't look like it. Uh, I always say that French breed dogs, like they cook food. Um, the results are incredible, but do not look in the kitchen, man. You do not <laughs> want to see how it's been made. Um, so, yeah, again, the, the whole idea of pure breeding, the whole idea of pedigrees and registries and all those things is going to or it's going through a massive shakeup right now there are groups online there are groups on facebook even that are that are pro crossbreeding and i mean they they you know they're open about what they're breeding to what just to recreate or to do this or to change that or to improve this there are now kennel clubs around the world that are approving breedings uh, even in in the gundog world the irish red and white setter uh, went through a, a, a revival program sanctioned by the Irish Kennel Club and by the Irish breeders that that saw them being, you know, revived by crosses to Irish red setters and 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 for all the better because now they're really really good gun dogs. So it's been going on for a long time, but it's kind of like now, yeah, with the twenty three and Me sort of thing. Now it's more, now that it's more in the open, it's less sort of a, a, a shameful thing to do people hide it less they just go okay look this is what i'm doing this is why i've done it uh, if you agree get on board if you don't well i don't care i don't have to kowtow to any major registry anymore i'm just going to do my own thing yeah so who knows it, it's it, again it's it's going to change uh, that's all i know i don't know where it's going all, all i know is that it's not staying where it is um things are definitely moving in the right direction in my mind because we're seeing people come on board young people with new attitudes uh, we're seeing things like Darrell Smith's um, minority, minor, outdoor, minority Outdoor Alliance. We're seeing, you know, people of color and people from different backgrounds and different traditions getting into the hunting sport. Women are getting in in droves. My wife didn't hunt until about maybe five, six years ago. She followed me around with a camera for 20 years. And then a few years ago, she said, ah, I'm ready for a gun. So she got a gun and now she hunts and she's a better shot than me. And hunts just as much as I do. And, and that's really, really encouraging seeing more women come in, more young people come in, more people with different backgrounds come in. So I'm, again, I'm an optimist. You'll hear a lot of people moan about the loss of the old days, but they're crotchety old farts anyway. So mm -hmm. I don't pay much attention to them. I, I like hanging out with the younger guys. The th the, it seems to be like a, a way of the world though, too. Like things, things change and there's always going to be some romance for that nostalgia and the way things used to be. Right. And, and there's definitely a lot that we can look back and learn from back there. But I think like to keep up with, with everything, you got to be looking forward a lot of the times here. And, uh, um, I think, I mean, as, as, as much as the bird dog scene has in the upland hunting has, has kind of become a wayward thing i think it there's going to be another resurgence just because of 
a our love for nostalgia and the romance and like you said it might not look the same yeah i don't think it'll look the same i don't think it'll ever reach the same numbers in terms of you know if you go back to the 50s and 60s when my dad was really active as under basically everybody even when i was a kid I, i went to high school in the 1970s and i remember the opening day of duck season like half the class was gone you know my nephew went to the same high school and he was like the only guy in his school that that hunted now a few of his buddies are getting in now there's some more so i don't think we're ever going to see the glory days where there's tens of thousands of hunters heading out every season to do this and that but i think what we're going to make up for the quantity is quality i think that people who do hunt are sort of have a deeper attachment to it i think they're more into that sort of you know um uh, field to table sort of thing where i know in my own personal life that that you know, I am much more involved with the butchering and the cleaning and the and the cooking to a much higher degree of all my game than I was, you know, years ago uh, when I was growing up. When I was growing up, anything you shot was basically freezer food because the winter is long and you weren't, you know, I mean, it was just, you know, so that we didn't have to go out and buy steaks in the winter. We had something in the freezer. Nowadays, no way, man. We go out after, you know, tiny things like snipe and woodcock. And we bring them home and we cook them to the best of our ability and we open the best bottle of wine and we share them with friends who aren't hunters, but that enjoy the meat, you know, enormously. People mm-hmm. with kids, we should, we give them because they just know that that meat is coming from a, from a wholesome source. And so, so to us, we're not religious people, my wife and I, we're absolutely not religious, but the closest we come to religion is hunting. In fact, it's, it's, it's like going to, to, to a service for us. It's like being in a temple to us out there. That's really what it comes down to. And when we eat the meal at the end of the day, it's like communion. That, that's the closest I think I can get. And, and you mentioned that it is, you know, sort of the search for return or the search for connection with nature. And I've written about that. I said that dogs, that's what, that's what we use dogs for. The dogs are our way to connect to the natural world. They are a, sort of a, you know, our, our hotline to the natural world. And that's what they allow us to do. And it reminds me of one of my favorite stories. And I don't know what mythological tradition this comes from, but it it goes like, you know, the maker of the universe, the maker of the world. He made the world and he made all the animals and he made man. He said, okay, I'm going to make, with my hand, I'm going to divide. I'm going to, you know, put a big canyon between you guys. I'm going to put a canyon in the earth with man on one side and all the animals on the other side so that you're forever separate. And just as his hand was about to smash the earth, dog jumped over to be with man. <laughs> and I've always remembered that. The dog might have yeah, been confused, that's, but that that's yeah, no, the dog was he realized that he was best to be with man. He was that's where he's supposed to be. Yeah. And and he's the he's the messenger. He's the one that connects us. He's the one that he's the bridge between those two worlds. And I think that that to me, the more the deeper I get into studying dogs and the deeper I get into studying the cultures they come from, the more I understand that that's really what it's all about. And that's, I think, where the future lies. It, it, it lies with people who understand that, who aren't out there to fill their limit, who aren't out there, you know, for trophies, uh, you know, who aren't out there necessarily to, I mean, if you look at the sporting press over the last 10, 15 years, you'll see the difference. It, it's not so much now. I mean, of course, it still exists. The Big Buck magazine and, you know, this and the trophy and limits and stuff. It's It's much more now an organic kind of a thing there there's more about picking cranberries and how to cook it with the goose you got and 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 Mm -hmm. and how to you know enjoy the outdoors more than just how do i get how do i beat my competitor at this particular you know numbers game that we're out there to shoot the most or fish the most fish Mm -hmm. 
those dogs certainly occupy a, a unique and unrivaled space in our lives. I would, I would say, um, I'm wondering, I've heard this saying before, but do you, would you go as far as to say that this is the, maybe the official mantra of, of the gun dog that, uh, that dog will hunt? Have you, have you heard that one before Craig? That dog will hunt? Yeah. Yeah. I've heard that actually. I think, I think that's part of a lyric of you ain't nothing but a hound dog. Um, the original version, something about that dog won't hunt anyway. Yeah. yeah. I did. It makes me think of, uh, as we kind of reformulate things here and shift away from such a, uh, technical and precise understanding of, uh, of our relationship with dogs that it, it's always been, it seems a situation with dogs that, that first and foremost, their relationship with us and, also that relationship being de- defined by the task that we're doing, which is typically hunting. Right. So um, it's not whether you run the straight line in the field trial so much as if, uh, you know, as you described the, the French way of knowing, uh, are, are you pointing and are you having fun? To me, I'll tell you, I, I know when a guy has a good dog, I, I can tell you when a guy has a good dog, uh, a guy or a girl. It's when, it, if you ask them or just observe them, if they take their dog out to a field trial or to an habit test or to a hunt, it doesn't matter. If they spend a day with their dog in the field and they're driving home and there's a smile on their face, that's a good dog. End of story. <laughs> that's a good dog. The dog's job in this world is to put a smile on our face. That smile comes from our satisfaction of being connected to the natural world. It's what we seek unconsciously with our dogs. We want to be part of the natural world. We want to, we want to have that connection. And when a dog achieves that, for us, we smile. And that is the satisfaction. So again, I don't care how many trophy cases you filled with that dog. If you're driving home and you don't have a smile on your face, that's not a good dog. And that dog's not doing his job. That's interesting to say, because like you, uh, in my experience, I mean, we got a dog quite young, bird dog, a lab, and we, we hunted over that dog for a long time. And when you go hunt over and when you do hunt without a dog, you lose part of that hunt for sure. But there's a certain enjoyment of, of just going out and, and watching that dog work and that dog being happy. And that, that just, man, it lights a fire and it, and it lights the euphoria that you get from, A, watching that dog be happy doing some of the, the, the grungiest, dirty, bushwhacking, mud slinging, you know, marsh walking work that you can do. But, uh, just i kind of lost my train of thought there but just the fact that 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 dog loves doing that and and uh it really connects you oh yeah i'll I'll tell you what i i I wish i knew my purpose as clearly as any of those dogs that whether it's willie or remington or lab there those dogs knew their purpose and uh executed it as as happily as they could right so yeah how many times have you heard somebody say i'll never not hunt with a dog again (laughs) right yeah oh yeah oh yeah once you do it i mean it it really does feel like yeah it feels weird hunting without a dog i mean we'll do it on occasion if it's super cold and we can't take him into the blind or something or or whatever we'll leave him in the truck until we're done and they do the fetching after that or something but it's yeah it's i i I don't enjoy it at all well craig we've dived down a few rabbit holes and all of them were fantastic so I'm, i'm excited that we did that but i'm before we wrap up, I've, I've got just a few 
softball questions here that you know might be percolating on folks' minds too to to kind of look at just dogs in general and any kind of uh, if I know some folks are probably curious about um, recommendations for a, a, a first gun dog, things like that. Like, is there, is there particular breeds that folks should look out for or like any kind of temperament kind of things? Yeah. The answer, the, the, the short answer is yes, they have to, they have to eventually select the breed and yes, they have to eventually select what type of temperament, what type of drive, what type of range, what type of, you know, action they want out of the dog. But there's a major step before then. Um, and I've written this on my blog, and there's also a very good article on Project Upland's um, website that I've written, and it's all about choosing your first dog because the secret is before you even think about the dog, you need to spend time thinking about yourself. You need to understand what your needs and wants are and try and forget what you've seen in or read in articles or seen on the TV about these high, you know, this type of dog or that type of dog or the one your neighbor has or or the one you did, you saw over there, or whatever. You have to kind of clear your mind of the dog first and do a little bit of soul searching. Know thyself, as they say. You have to understand your own situation, your own personality. How driven are you? Are you driven by drive or desire? Are you a, a keen trainer or a lazy trainer like me? Do you, you know, who are you? What are you? What kind of hunter are you? And then what you need to do is then find a breed with the temperament that matches you because everything else is just a recipe for not necessarily disaster, but it isn't the recipe for optimum happiness. So I can't remember the name of the article, but if you go into Project Upland's uh, website or on their Facebook page and you search for it, or even just search my name online, um, you know, finding the best gun dog for you, it goes sort of step by step through that process. And that could be an entire episode. But yeah, you're right. You have to find the right breed and the right dog and the right temperament. But first, do some time asking yourself some hard questions and being honest with yourself. Oh, I want this dog because I'm going to be a field trial champion. No, are you really? Maybe you are. Maybe you are that driven guy. But a lot of us, we kind of overestimate our our abilities. We overestimate you know, exactly what we're going to do and, and what we will do. Um, and then just be honest with yourself and then find a dog that meets your requirements, not anybody else's, but you and you, yours. Matt, one of the coolest things I and to add to that, what I learned about when getting Willie here is uh, my IR setter was I, Chase talked about our dog earlier. I thought I had like a decent idea of what I was getting into when I was going to train another dog and, you know, welcome another dog into the family. But I quickly learned that Willie's Willie's a unique dog unto himself, and one of maybe the most rewarding thing of this whole journey has been that seeing that unique relationship express itself. So, I have a relationship with Willie that is like no other dog that I've interacted with, and it's just really cool to have such a close connection with an animal again that I I hadn't had for such a long time. So I think that's. You know, while it can be scary to to look at all the things that you, all the ducks you need to get in a row, um, thinking about some of the reward factor, like that relationship you'll develop with that animal is just, it, it's something that I can't under, underscore enough. Good for you. Yeah. Yeah. It's exciting. The, the other thing I was wondering about in this, this loops back to Willie too, in case you can't tell, but any tips on fo- photographing dogs? Because like, especially when he was a puppy, he was like a little, um, he was like a little P 
pinata did kind of like bounced around everywhere and it was just uh incredibly hard to get him in frame and uh doing something photogenic uh we got mm. a lot a lot of derp faces um but like <laughs> what what are you looking for when you're shooting and uh photographing a dog since it's i'm assuming it's one of your uh one of your main interests here yeah in fact i i've given up all forms of photography i no longer do any commercial photography any portraiture anything that i used to do for a living and i only photograph dogs now that's pretty much uh that's pretty much it so again that's an entire podcast episode i can give you a ton of tips um so because there's so many sort of technical tips and everything i can give you sort of my top 10 or top two or three things um that people do wrong um dogs are not tall okay so do not take a picture of a dog standing up um almost you know 99 percent of the photographs if you look on my website and there's a shit ton of oops there's a ton of uh, photographs of dogs on my website um were taken when i'm on my knees or on my butt or on my belly all right that's where they are so get down all right uh, number two would be get closer. Most people take pictures of their dog. And if you take, if, 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 if the image is four inches by five inches, there's, there's approximately, you know, one quarter of an inch in the middle of their dog. And then the rest is the fire hydrant and the, the, you know, and the house behind them and a couple of cars down the road. I want to see your dog, take a picture, fill the frame. So get down, get lower and fill the frame. Uh, the other thing is don't make a big deal of it. In other words, if you've got a camera and a lot of people just use their phone because they always have it. The best camera that you could possibly use is the camera that you have. It's not the one that's in the closet that you never bring out. Or when you do bring it out, it's just a big deal to get it done. Because by the time you're done, you know, futzing with your camera, your dog is doing something else, right? So always have your camera sort of ready, whether it's your phone uh, or another camera. And if it is another camera, have it set and ready to go. And then just relax, get down, let the dog do what it does. Just be patient and just take a bunch of photographs. For every, you'll, you'll go on my website, you'll go, oh, that's a great photo. Well, I can guarantee you for that one great photo, there's 20 bad ones before and 20 bad ones after that. And I chose it. So the top three, get down lower, all right, with your dog. And number two, get closer, fill the frame or most of the frame with them. And three, shoot a lot and then call, throw out anything that isn't brilliant and only keep the brilliant ones. Well, sounds really practical. And I'm glad I asked that question. And it sounds like we got at least two, maybe I got another podcast percolating in the back of my head here. So we're looking, we're looking at maybe a small mini series, but uh, yeah. 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 Craig, I want to thank you so much for coming on, man. Um, I got one more been, question yeah. before we leave. I want to rewind a little bit back across the pond and um, um, it's, it's kind of off, off topic now, but I'm curious about the German hunters, man. And yeah. Like they, they have to go through this, this whole course and, and get certified. Like it's a big deal. And, and like the, just the thinking about the, 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 the German nature, but I want to, I, I know you, you've, you've gone over there and you've seen things through like an objective lens. What, what's, what's it like hanging out with those guys? Or is it like, are they walking around like, like they're swinging the biggest bratwurst kind of thing or what's the, what's the deal? Well, on the one hand, it's no different than hanging out with a bunch of other hunters anywhere else. I mean, again, there's there's just so much in common. And even though my German is very poor, I don't I, I speak maybe 10, 15 words of German. I understand a little bit of it now. Um, so I can't like I speak French and Italian so I can hang out with French and Italian guys and understand and speak with them. In Germany, I'm I'm forced to speak English and not all of them speak English. So there's a there's a cultural divide. But because we're hunters, it's kind of like a universal language. Mm -hmm. You kind of get what they're talking about and you understand where they're coming from. So there's there's more in common than not. 
but the, the the parts that aren't in common are so different that, that they they kind of stand out right and you sort of notice them so their hunts are are highly organized in other words it's rare that like one or two guys go hunting it's typically groups of them about up to 50 or 100 guys like literally you know maybe not mm. that many but there's always you know numbers of guys i hunted on a small island called Baltrum, which is in the North Sea, north uh, north coast of Germany near Holland. And it's an island that might measure, I don't know, maybe three miles wide by eight, ten miles long. And it's overrun by rabbits because somebody brought rabbits there 150 years ago. They weren't supposed to, and now they've multiplied. So every year they invite some hunters to do a cull. And basically they run around with dogs and there's rabbits and there's pheasants and there's roe deer. There's, it's, it's a hell of a good hunt. Hmm. But I was there, and there were 45 of us. Uh, 45, yeah, we were in groups of five, and we covered the entire width of the island and walked from one end to the other over a day. And the dogs would point. And we'd, you know, but, I mean, it's, 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 it, it's regulated. I mean, it's not like, let's just go, and I'll go here, and I'll see you in an hour. I mean, you're kind of, you're hunting. It seems like a normal hunt, but then you look over, and there's like, you know, 30 guys off to your left and 10 off to your right. So there's more hunters. Yeah. They also hunt in different ways. They hunt different game. They hunt a lot of boar. They hunt a lot of deer. They, they do a lot of driven hunts. Mm -hmm. They use their dogs in different ways. They want their dogs to, to be loud. In other words, they want their dogs, if they're chasing something, to bark so you know where they're at. So there's all these, they do a lot of tracking, which is unbelievable. Their dogs are trained to super high levels. So it's just, it's just a different vibe, I think. Although it's within the hunting realm. Again, you don't feel like a complete stranger or like you're completely in a foreign alien context. It's it, mm -hmm. it's familiar because it's it's hunting. There's guns and there's guys and there's there's bratwurst. It's great. There's beer. It's it's fantastic. I would go there in a heartbeat tomorrow. But it, it is you kind of have to have somebody explain it to you because you yeah. don't really know what's going on some of the time. And then when you figure it out, it's like, oh, that makes sense. Mm. There's music. They play. At the end of a hunt, they lay out all the game. You know, we'd have a couple hundred rabbits a day, a bunch of pheasants. And then they play a song on these horns for each one of the animals. They put a leaf in the in the mouth of a deer. to symbol. There's a lot of symbolism and a lot of traditional things that they do. The hunting culture in Germany is thousands of years old. Mm -hmm. And it's still reflected to that today. Um, so it's very traditional. Um, and the numbers of hunters are are is fairly small. There's maybe... In, in France, there'll be a couple million hunters. In Germany, maybe 300,000. That's it. There's like literally in a country of 80 million people, there's only 300,000 hunters. So they're a fraction of what they are here or in other countries. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's it's a different vibe. But, if, but you know what? Germany, France, Italy, France, it doesn't matter. Australia, Argentina, it doesn't matter. I would encourage all of your listeners, if you ever get a chance to go anywhere other than your own backyard to hunt, just do it. Mm -hmm. It will change the way you view hunting. And then if you get the chance to invite them here, oh my God, that that <laughs> is a whole other thing too. Because I've had people from France and Italy and England and the States and come over and, and Holland to come and hunt with us. And f watching your own or, or going through your own hunting grounds and hunting your own game but seeing it through the eyes of someone who's never seen it before is mind blowing. Just to just to see how rich we really are here and how lucky we are here, it's it's incredible. They come over here and it's like they've died and gone to heaven. And you mm -hmm. you're thinking, well, I do this every weekend. You know what's the big deal? Yeah. But after a while, you realize, holy shit, this is a big deal. We are in one of the best countries of the world to be hunters in. It's just it's incredible, and we're very lucky. And so that that cross 
Cultural exchange is something that I implore everybody to try and do at least once in their life. Go somewhere or host somebody from somewhere else and hunt with them. It will change your life. Amazing. Yeah, that sounds, uh, yeah, that maybe that just got added to the bucket list. Okay. <laughs> yeah, man. Last, uh, that's, that's very, uh, sage parting advice too. So Craig, uh, I'll, we'll do the, uh, the goodbye now, but, uh, thanks for coming on again. Thanks for sharing the knowledge. Like I said, we got lots to talk about, I think even going forward, um, where can, where can folks find your stuff if they, if they want to dig in a little deeper for even topics that we didn't get onto today? The best place to, to find, you know, and connect with anything I do is dogwilling.ca. It's the website that I, I set up and it, it has, you know, links to all the other stuff that I do. So dogwilling.ca um, has my photography, my books, some videos and all sorts of things. And then you can also check out Project Upland, the magazine. Uh, I write for that magazine and, and some other stuff on their website as well. And then Hunting Dog Confidential. Uh, it's a podcast and it's a magazine as well. Both of those are out of the States. So dogwilling.ca or Project Upland or Hunting Dog Confidential. They're all sort of intertwined now. Well, we want to thank you not only for coming on, but carrying the torch forward here and doing the the exciting and dirty work of the the historical take on all things pointing dogs. Um, we're looking forward to the the next volume coming out, and uh, just again a huge thank you for coming on. Well, thank you guys for having me. It was a pleasure. Hopefully, we'll catch you catch you in the field. Hey everyone, more exciting news coming out of Wool Love. They've got a new sister company called Northwall Apparel. Northwall builds on the advantage of, of the 100% merino wool base layers from Wolof, and it adds in the flexibility and durability of spandex to create a premium mid-layer that will keep you warm, comfortable, and odorless so you can squeeze out those extra that extra time out in the ice, winter camping, hiking, doing whatever you love to do in the wintertime. All of us at Panoramic have been wearing this stuff for over a year now, and we love it. So they got two cool new garments in with the Northwall sister company. They got a men's quarter zip-up hoodie, and they also got some women's leggings. So if you're looking for something to, uh, you know, maybe that mid-layer garment, you should check out Wool Love. That's wool.love. Check out Northwall. And right now, you can use Panoramic 10 for $10 off your first purchase. It's available on Amazon and through the website, like I said, www.wool.love. And just look for the Northwall project. The promo code is only valid with the Wool Love site. So please check them out. That's wool.love or check out their Instagram. We want to thank Craig so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, we had to cut it there, unfortunately. But uh, as you could tell, multiple talk topics that we could continue down the rabbit holes with Craig there. He's got his fingers in so many different kind of cookie jars or whatever the expression might be there. But Craig has so much knowledge around that photography, obviously the pointing dogs and even just some of the, the, the hobbies that he's into too sounded really cool. So I think we are, we already committed to having him on a second time just to wrap a few things up. Hey, Chase. Oh man, super cool guy. Really enjoyed chatting with him. And uh, yeah, I hope we can get him on again and and uh, touch base with some of the other stuff he he's passionate about there. Totally. And just a reminder, our, our store is continually being restocked as we go along here. So check it out for the latest and greatest. And uh, we'll, we'll try to keep you posted as much as possible on any new, new stuff coming in. But uh, Sheldon's on top of that stuff. So he restocks it as best he can, when he can. 
And then uh, lastly, we just want to wish you luck for March Madness. We know it's a big time of year for a lot of folks, and we hope your lines stay tight and that you uh, maybe if you're not hooking into some fish, you're making some spring bear, spring turkey plans. Right on. Here we go. It's March Madness, baby. Let's do it. So one more reminder, keep those lines tight, clear those holes, and keep an edge on your blade. We'll go with uh, Old Faithful there. There you go.